of all the teachers, and I'm teaching the teachers these days, I've never heard anyone actually express concerns about the fact that they're doing a higher qualification, even if that's not required by their, uh, their employer. They feel that they're able to give so much more to their students by having a greater understanding of the pedagogy behind teaching. There is almost a cringe that goes on in the VET sector that we don't actually have to come up to the same standards as teachers in schools or teachers in higher ed. That, you know, somehow we're, so, we're something different. And as far as I can see, a teacher is a teacher, no matter who it is that you're teaching. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis, and today's topic is the quality of VET teaching. Our Vocational Voices today are Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVER. Hello, Simon. Hello, Steve. Uh, Martin Powell, Chief Executive Officer, VET Development Centre, or VDC. Hello, Martin. Hi, Steve. And Linda Simon, educationalist and researcher who currently teaches in adult education at Charles Sturt University. Welcome to you, Linda. Hi, Steve. Now, new research suggests there are some key issues affecting the quality of vocational education and training teaching that need to be addressed. These include entry-level requirements, limited career pathways, workforce casualisation and lack of support for professional development. The report, Building Capability and Quality in VET Teaching, Opportunities and Challenges, reveals that these issues affect the recruitment of capable VET trainers with industry expertise in high-demand skills, particularly in regional areas, and impact on the quality of VET teaching. In this episode, we'll tease apart these issues and see if we can find some common ground on what might help us build capability and quality in VET teaching. Now, given the underlying theme of this topic, I think I should start by asking, should we be concerned about the quality of VET teaching? And I know, Simon, that you've got some results of surveys of students and employers. What did they have to say? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is we have to be careful when we talk quality of teaching. It is an elusive concept and it is one that's based on perception. So the information we have through our surveys is from the student outcome survey, which talks about a range of things and requests a lot of information from students, one of which is about their perception of their training experience, including their perception of the quality of the training and the teacher. And the good news there is that there are extremely high levels of satisfaction and they've been consistently high for many, many years. So when I talk about high, about 85 to 90% of respondents are satisfied with the quality of the teaching experience. We also have a survey of employers called the Survey of Employers Use and Views, a slightly different question, but specifically around whether they were satisfied with the trainer's knowledge and experience of the industry, and we're about to talk a little bit about the dual roles that a vet teacher has. Uh, again, high satisfaction levels in that 80 to 90% range. All right, well, that gives us a benchmark to start with. Martin, may I turn to you? Because in the NCVR report, uh, stakeholders feel that what's leading to variability in the quality of vet teaching is the, the challenge that teachers need to meet dual prerequisites of both industry currency and teaching skills. How fair do you think that summary is? Yeah, I would follow on from what Simon was just referring to, that 
in terms of the, the clients of the sector being the employers and the students, they're obviously quite satisfied with the teaching engagement. So it might be unfair, like within any profession, to expect uh, the teacher to be carrying the whole uh, business or organisation. So the varying quality of uh, an employee of a business is probably down to the recruitment and support perhaps that they're getting in their organisation. So it, I think it's a bit of a, uh, a generalisation. I would think if someone isn't performing well in a teaching role, it wouldn't be because they're grappling with being a teacher and their industry currency. It might be the other supports that are around them. So do you think we're over-egging the omelette in trying to say this is uh, a unique situation of needing to have teaching skills and industry currency? Yes, I would, because I would say a lot of uh, vocations have a regulatory environment around them and a, a CPD requirement, an entry level of education, an expectation of their employer, their uh, market perception. So I don't think it's unique to this sector at all. The report highlights uh, great resistance to changing or adding to entry requirements for vet teaching because the sector lost many teachers after the recent uh, training and assessment or TAE upgrade. Um, Linda, as someone who teaches in adult education, does it worry you that any moves to lift qualifications or standards might lead to a further exodus of teachers from the sector? That doesn't worry me uh, most. And I wonder whether there's another way of putting that question so that it's actually about whether if we don't look at lifting qualifications and we don't look at lifting standards, what might be the impact of that? So it's coming back to, I guess, um, where Simon started about quality being a variable thing. And, um, and I think that um, Martin picked up on that too. But I, of, all the teach, of all the teachers, and I'm teaching the teachers these days, of all the teachers, I've never heard anyone actually express concerns about the fact that they're doing a higher qualification, even if that's not required by their, uh, their employer. They have gained so much out of it as teachers and they feel that they're able to give so much more to their students by having a greater understanding of the pedagogy behind teaching. And I think that there is almost a cringe that goes on in the vet sector that we don't actually have to, you know, come up to the same standards as teachers in schools or teachers in higher ed, that, you know, somehow we're, so, we're something different. And as far as I can see, a teacher is a teacher, no matter who it is that you're teaching. And um, you should be able to have the, the best qualifications and therefore um, the best understanding of how to deal with the diversity of your students to be able to use a diverse range of methodologies um, in your teaching um, as any other teacher. And I think that the fact that we have not expected that and somehow have dumbed down our teachers in the vet sector for so many years, I think that that has become a real problem. And I think at that, it's about time we turned around and sort of said, hey, you're great teachers. Well, the NCVR data shows that for a start, but we also know anecdotally and uh, through quality research that you're great teachers. We appreciate you and we're going to continue to support you in order to increase 
and, you know, take on different qualifications. And that that is not about just adding another unit of competency to the TAE. And I think that was some of the frustration that people felt. And that's why some walked away rather than their feeling that they did not want a higher level qualification. Linda, I do love the fact that you reframed my question. I do... It's always wonderful (laughs) as an interviewer. So I'm going to turn the tables as well or meet you there because you opened that answer by saying that you don't think anyone would be um, unhappy about taking on more qualifications or lifting the game. But there is an aspect to this from the report that in this sector, uh, the vet teaching sector, it's a highly casualised sector. Almost half of teachers and assessors are in non-permanent roles. So there's a worry about the cost that comes with achieving these higher qualifications. Uh, how, how does that sit with you? And I guess that comes back to the cringing okay. issue. And with that, if you if you know this this sort of idea that the vet teacher is actually a trainer and doesn't need to understand a whole lot of pedagogies in relation to teaching their students, then then that's it's to me it's it's that sort of issue that's half of the problem, um, and that we should be able to turn around in some way. Now, the vet sector has been casualised. Well, you know, certainly as long as I've been in it, and I've been in it for a few years now. <laughs> the higher education sector is very casualised too. But that doesn't suffer from the, uh, I think, the same problems that we we think about in the in the vet sector. If we have, we you know, we can we can either differentiate between the the qualifications and the support uh, that are expected of people undertaking different roles within the sector. We can look at ways that we can better support those who are in casual roles, because once again, if you're a teacher, you're a teacher then we can look at better ways that we can support, we can mentor, we can ensure that they have access to increased qualifications, that they have financial support, that would be nice, um, and that we can have ways of setting up networks that will support, continue to support. And I note that the research picked up on some of the, um, the wonderful national um, uh, networks that, uh, that used to operate in the sector and were ways that people could get together to share their their knowledge, to um, to share and build on their um, their professional development, um, and that would be accessible to casual teachers, hmm. um, as accessible as to those who are tenured. Yeah, I was just wondering in relation to the issue of the qualification and the, and the level of education to be a teacher. There's probably a distinction in the nature of someone who's newly being or being recruited into the training system from particularly for someone from industry and someone who's been a, a vet teacher for for many years or, or, or even decades and with the training and assessment qualification one of the requirements was that every five years you had to update that qualification for a new version and I think and I'm actually kind of posing this to both Linda and Martin is that there's a lot of resentment to, to someone who's been teaching for 20 or 30 years to have to continue to requalify as a mandatory requirement of their uh, teaching credentials when as far as they're concerned they've been doing the job they know what they're doing and they having to be forced back into this and that was one of the reasons rather than completely replace the previous qualification it was decided to add two units because of that known resistance and resentment to actually having to do that qualification again a comment uh, martin yeah i think that's a great point simon and 
I know the paper that came out recently by NCBR focuses on capability mm. frameworks and versus professional standards. And I think the real strength with capability frameworks is the ones that work well identify beginner, intermediate and advanced uh, professionals in VET. And that may be a way, if there was some way of monitoring one's career in progress, you might not be obliged to go back and do that mandated type of upgrades to your qualifications if in fact you'd already been in a CPD or merit recognition system that would demonstrate you had those skills. Linda? I notice that the report picks up on the issue around currency and the fact that um, you're the fact that if you're actually a vet teacher and you're teaching, that's not considered to be a matter of counting for industry currency. Um, I've always thought that that was, I don't know, a little degrading for those teachers not to have that, um, you know, the fact that they, they're there, they're teaching, they're working with their students, they're working with their local industries. Um, if all of that doesn't count towards their uh, their currency, then I'm not quite sure what does. So I think that if we can, coming back to that idea of, um, of being able to value what teachers do and therefore um, by using a capability framework or, or some other method, allowing them to identify where they are doing well, where they do need to build on, on different skills, where they'd like to branch off and do something different and therefore um, do something there. And I was part of an NCVR research project on applied research where we developed a capability framework around what skills you might need if you're participating in applied research and innovation. So there are a range of things that people can do and I just think that the sector is not really um, expanding its horizons to to accept the, the diversity, to accept that there's not just one way of getting there, that the Certificate 4 is not the only way and new units in the Certificate 4 is not the only way of, of building people's capabilities and professional development. Well, I'd like to pick up because you've, you've touched on frameworks there and professional standards. And I was going to ask Martin in particular, uh, because in the report, uh, opinions divided on the merits of having a, a nationally prescribed framework or set of professional standards for vet teachers, while at the same time there's high support for capability frameworks. Can you tease that apart for us, Martin? Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? And perhaps reflects the nature of vet being a federation model where uh, all the states and jurisdictions of Australia run their own training systems. Uh, so there, there has been some talk for some time about a national, uh, national sort of uh, regulation or uh, registration of teachers, and, and that's gone back and forth as a policy debate for some time. So that could be a nuance of the challenge there, whereas a capability framework, there's quite a few that are referenced uh, in that recent report, and they all seem to have similar themes. Where, where I think they're popular and have a lot of value is what they're for predominantly is to help with job design for practitioners. It helps with their career progression, their annual reviews, and the better ones I think have the elements of professional values and ethics, which are really, as what Linda was saying too, you know, it gives status and you know, acknowledgement of the, the role that the practitioners play in the education system. So going back to the Australian model of where it's different around Australia, I think uh, frameworks that are acknowledged rather than one professional standard may 
allow that flexibility between professions and the way things are done in each state and territory to work. Uh, for example, with the Vet Development Centre, we, we have a model in Victoria where the state government provides funding to the VDC to provide um, professional development for all the skills first providers in the state, which is an incredibly popular model and good to see it referred to in um, a lot of research. But people from interstate also come to our uh, fee-for-service programs as well, looking for that same sort of uh, professional development. And we use the IBSA uh, Bet Practitioner Capability Framework, which is one that is from, a, I think, 2012 it was developed. It's really the underlying themes and domains and capabilities in that are now reflected in a lot of other frameworks. So probably an example of how a framework can influence other uh, TAFEs or providers that take on their own system. So something is still worth exploring and I think the most powerful thing about a framework is it lets um, there be multiple providers for CPD and it lets the different sort of public, private and community organisations tailor their own way of developing their staff and having some autonomy but everyone having a central idea of what are the right um, professional knowledge and practice engagement skills, um, digital literacy now um, more so than ever, and the continual, con continuous professional development and entrepreneurship and innovation skills that you'd want to see through the career progression of a teacher. I'd like to go a little bit deeper down that pathway because you touched on professional development there and that leads into the support and mentoring of our vet teachers. And uh, and yes, VDC did get some favourable uh, mentions in this report, which is heartening. Uh, but if I head back to Linda, though, because you raised this really early on in this interview, how do you think we're faring as far as that support or mentoring for our, our vet teachers? Where are we doing well? Where do we have lack uh, from your perspective, given that you teach the teachers, you work in this this field of adult teaching? Um, it is very variable, Steve, um, and obviously I don't necessarily know a lot about where the, uh, the, the teachers are, you know, stationed and what they are, what their um, their actually their support mechanisms might be. Um, I have to say that, and you know, acknowledge Martin and VDC and others in Victoria that we often get fairly strong, um, uh, you know, information from those who come from Victorian institutes that there's um, there's often some very good support um, and interest in uh, developing uh, the teachers and in providing them with both that initial qualification that they're expected to have, but also with the opportunity to de de develop and move into different ways. And, um, and I mentioned the applied research was now part of their their agreement um, down there in the TAFEs in Victoria. Um, in other states and territories, uh, you know, once again, it, it seems to be variable, um, but, then, you know, Often, if they're at university, of course, they're coming from somewhere that does recognise that they need to um, that there is a you know a good opportunity for somebody to be able to take on a higher qualification, and therefore they have support and mentoring um, from back in their um, in their particular workplaces. So it's there; it's recognised in all the literature as good practice. Yet, I'm not quite sure that always the um, the employers within the vet sector put that good practice into place and um, 
you know, I'm aware that of, of somewhere recently where I was talking to a minister in education and, and raised the issues about professional development and building capabilities of the staff. And the, the minister said, well, you know, that's the responsibility of the teacher. It's nothing to do with the government. Now, wow. I found that a rather unfortunate um, comment. And um, certainly, you know, I would hope it was just, you know, sort of an off the cuff and the, that maybe with a little rethinking that they might um, realise that they actually had incredibly um, important role to play in ensuring that there was funding to maximise professional development for, for vet teachers across both public and uh, private and I think that that's been shown as a really um, important issue as we, mm. whatever happens with <laughs> COVID-19, I mean, we, we've been told, you know, all around the place, and I think we all recognise how important the vet sector will be in, um, in helping to, to train and retrain people as we move into new industries or we change the way we do things. And we need to make sure that we've supported our teachers in a whole range of ways to be able to meet those challenges. I'm still boggling over the minister's suggestion that teachers mentor yes. themselves. <laughs> well, I was a bit boggled too. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Simon. Yeah, and just picking up on that point, uh, the report does refer to uh, an old program, a national, nationally funded program called Reframing the Future, where a, a significant amount, but arguably uh, not enough, uh, was provided on an ongoing basis specifically for the professional development of vocational education teachers. And that went by the by uh, over the years. And there's a strong view that there should be a more systemic uh, source of funding for the professional development of vet teachers. And of course, if you can't get that through uh, a government process, then it is, as Linda rightly points out, the obligation on any employer to have their staff fully trained and skilled, uh, whether that's a vet teacher or anything else. And I think the distinction, if we go right back to the, where we started on, on the quality issue is, it, it's probably not so much the teacher as the institutional environment that they're working in and those supports, I think Linda mentioned that, and in the unfortunate um, and hopefully minority areas where we have known issues with quality providers, it's probably more about the institution of that provider than it is about the staff and the teachers that work within it. Martin, I'll just quickly insert, you did reference that we have a federated model and, and that leads to differences around the place, but you've got the ears of everyone at the moment. If I had to ask you from a VDC perspective, what is there one or two particular ways in which support or mentoring is modelled and, and put forward? What would you love others to be pondering and reflecting and sizing up from their perspectives? I, that's a, a great observation, Steve, because and it's not being parochial, but Victoria is the jurisdiction that uh, kept the spirit of that reframing the future by having the VDC in place for 15 years now. So if you receive government funding in Victoria as a provider, you also get professional development. Now, that doesn't just mean webinars and workshops. We also um, do community of practice and certainly have leadership and mentoring programs. And that's something that we're going to expand um, further in the coming years, particularly with the, the pivot this year uh, to online training, which we were, we were able to deliver everything that we'd planned to this year, but we're already in the virtual environment webinars, but now we've gone further. So I think people have got used to the technology of Zoom meetings and other platforms they mightn't have been 
willing to use in the past. So I think there's a new opportunity for all the other states to, if not have a, a VDC model, um, get the right providers or use their own institutions to reach people and do this community of practice and mentoring through the online means, because I'm sure the practitioners were always wanting it, but now it'll be easier to do out of hours or not face-to-face -face and really reach those areas. Uh, it's interesting too, I, I think it is the, the motivation of the organisation that you work at um, probably plays a factor in this rather than the teacher's motivation themselves. The VDC is for public, private and community providers. So it do, it's we get called Switzerland in a way, which I think is quite <laughs> a compliment. So it's not about politics. Um, and when you see the practitioners together, which Linda would talk to as well, they're really just seeing themselves as fellow practitioners. It's not so much that you work at a TAFE and I'm from an RTO or anything like that. That's where the, the mentoring and learning um, it really works to support each other. And when organisations see that and the employees come back to their, their staff and influence them, they'll um, start to encourage them to come to other sorts of training that they're happy to pay for as well. So you really, it's a change culture model that, that uh, could work across the country. If I lift my gaze now and we look at the recruiting question of, of attracting new people in uh, to the vet teaching sector, um, no doubt there are going to be some challenges and I just wonder, I'm going to float two complex ideas at once and, and ask if you'd both like to reflect on this. One of them is there is a suggestion in the report that uh, the vet sector might consider attracting tradespersons at the moment who might be out of work because of COVID-19 to come into the teaching field with the risk that when things change, restrictions are lifted, uh, they might be tempted to go back and we're going to lose them to industry. And at the other side, and particularly for Linda, this one, given that you you work in that academic field of, of teaching teachers at, at Charles Sturt University, um, when I grew up, grew up, my dad was a builder and he hated the paperwork and admin side of, of being a builder. And I note in the report there is talk about the administrative load of working in the vet sector. Uh, it might be like trying to blend oil and water within the DNA of people who have come with industry experience. So I'm going to put, put those on the plate and ask you both to reflect on them. And perhaps, Linda, would you like to, uh, to start by reflecting on, on these challenges ahead for recruitment? Steve, we've always had a, well, a long, a long term, I think, um, view that it would be a very good idea to be able to attract more tradespeople um, into vet teaching. Um, and, of course, we do. Um, and some stay, some love it, some decide that's not for them, and some rightly say, I make more money, you know, in a day as a tradesperson than I do as a week of a, as a teacher. But... I, you know, so I don't see that really this this is any different. I think that we should continue to look at how we attract not just tradespeople, but people from a whole range of industries. I mean, apprenticeships and trades are only really when it comes down to it, a relatively small small part of the vet sector, albeit the part that often gets some of the most attention. Um, and we should look at how then we we offer them opportunities to gain qualifications as a teacher. And once again, avoid that cringe of, mm. oh no, you might not like to do this qualification, so therefore we shouldn't expect it of you. Well, I think that we set the standards high, we set the expectations high, and we may find 
that those people who really do want to be teachers um, will come and we'll, we'll meet those. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think we should, you know, hmm. be concerned about um, that issue of what we uh, expect of people coming in. And that in terms of admin, well, yes, <laughs> you don't have to go far with teachers this in the vet sector and, you know, private, public, wherever, of asking about the thing that annoys them the most. And it is the issue around compliance. It is the issue around admin. Um, and as they say, it doesn't seem to improve a thing that they do with their students. So, you know, should we have a re-look at it? Should we have a look at quality being about what you actually do with students, what it is that you're able to, to do to help develop their potential, their capabilities? Um, and if all the admin and the paperwork on the side detracts from your abilities to do that, then, then maybe we should re-look at that. Thank you, Linda. I also note that that's three times in this interview that I led you towards the cultural cringe aspect of this debate. So I apologise and I, I will leave uh, much more enlightened in the future. Uh, Martin, your thoughts on this question, just to, to finish off this chat. It, it's been very interesting when the free TAFE started, uh, there was a, a great surge in demand for courses and that led to a, a shortage of teachers. And so once again, they need to find people from industry rather quickly and trying to compete with the salaries, which was a, an immense challenge. And I think institutions were even poaching from each other to get the teachers. Um, it's probably more about, and I think the paper touches on this too, attracting the right sort of person. Vet's virtue is that it's flexible and responsive to the needs of industry. And it's about turning um, people around quickly to for skill shortages and for business and demand. So equally with the teachers, you want to attract the best uh, practitioners and both uh, industry people, tradies as it were, but you don't want to scare them away with too much training or paperwork. What we find is that when uh, tradies, if you like, who have become teachers, they don't actually realise that they already have these skills and they're already applying them and they have been for years in the workplace anyway. So. I think it comes back to more that mentoring idea of that's the sort of people we want with the industry currency, but to give them more of a softer entry into the profession and then have others to support and help them through the paperwork side. I think, as I said before, regulation in, in most professions now is part of life and no one really likes the admin side, but it's the governance models we have or if they had a better understanding that that's why their RTO or TAFE or Learn Local requires a license to operate, so therefore you're required to adhere to those rules, I'm sure they'd understand that or be more sympathetic to it if it was broken down better because they've done that in their trades anyway, having to be registered as a plumber or the like. They understand that there's certain rules and regulations that are in place for a reason. So I hope that doesn't jar with what Linda was saying because I agree, but I think there's a maturity there perhaps as well in this being um, a true vocation. Hmm, that's a, a rallying way to finish. I'm looking for an application form now, I think. Look, thank you so much for having this conversation with me today, uh, Linda and Martin and Simon. 
uh, I would direct anyone, if you'd like to dive into this report, it would be on the NCVR website. It's called Building Capability and Quality in Vet Teaching Opportunities and Challenges. And to the panel, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.